I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which this recording takes place, the Gubby Gubby people of Southeast Queensland. I honour their continuing connection to land, sea and sky, as well as their elders, past, present and emerging. Hey there, welcome back to the Men, Sex and Pleasure podcast. I'm your host, Cam Fraser. This is episode number 198. We're talking all things masculinity, sexuality, male bodies, and men's experiences of pleasure. And on today's episode, I have the pleasure of chatting with Dr. James B. Stein. Dr. Stein is an assistant professor at Utah Tech University with a specialization in interpersonal communication. He's published over a dozen peer-reviewed journal articles, which can be found on his professional website, jamesbstein.com. In addition to this work as a teacher and a scholar, Dr. Stein can be found on social media, specifically on TikTok, under the username Jucifer, which is spelt J, then the number three, W-C-I-F-E-R. And on that platform in particular, Dr. Stein aims to distill complex, relational, political, and pop culture-centered topics. I have been following him online for a while now, and it was so lovely to hear that he was open to having a conversation with me, specifically about the manosphere and red pill ideology and the way that this impacts men. And we talk a little bit about figures that you might have heard of, such as Andrew Tate and Jordan Peterson, but ultimately we do our best to unpack some of the reasons why men find themselves in those spaces what is appealing about those spaces, what the worldview is that's espoused by the men that are influencing the manosphere, and some advice for how to speak to someone, a man in your life perhaps, who is in those spaces so that you can help them exit them. So if that is of interest to you, then this conversation with Dr. Stein should be right up your alley. It's great to connect with him, and I'm hoping to get him back for a round two so we can go a little bit more into the into the weeds, into the nuances. And this was uh, very general and I'm hoping to go a bit deeper with him. So yeah, it was enjoyable for me. I love nerding out with him. And so I hope this is an enjoyable listen for you. This might be a good time to describe what sexual intercourse is so you can understand some of the things we're talking about. At very special times, they like to hold each other close. God made their bodies so they fit together in a wonderful way. At one of those special love times, the sperm from the man's body can go into the woman's body. And in spite of her piety, she sometimes desires the more solid comfort of her husband Pierre's cock. James, the way I'd like to start, mate, is just with a little invitation for you to share a couple of things. Those things are, who are you? What do you do? I'd love to know, what are you really passionate about, man? Sure. So, uh, all right, I'll, I'll do the, the formal introduction, full title, uh, is Dr. James B. Stein. That's my pen name. Uh, I am currently an assistant professor at Utah Tech University in the great state of Utah. Um, hopefully soon, associate professor. I'll be submitting all my tenure and promotion stuff in May. So that's exciting for me. Congrats. Thank you. Thank you. Well, don't congratulate me yet. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so I, I study interpersonal communication. Specifically, I look at the ways in which couples interact with and accommodate to the various social networks who surround them. So the the simplest way that I always like to describe it is if you imagine the story of Romeo and Juliet, what I study is how would their relationship have worked if they hadn't like, you know, 
killed himself, right? How would the Capulets and the Montagues influenced their relationship? Uh, so that, that's the long and short of what I study. Uh, things that I'm passionate, I'm, I'm passionate about a lot of stuff, uh, but I will take the opportunity to plug my, my all-time greatest passion, which is that uh, I am a professional wiffle ball player, which, I, you know, I know uh, down under y'all might not be super familiar with it. It's basically baseball, but it's played with like all plastic stuff and, and, and the ball moves a lot more. And that's my, that's my truly great passion. The only thing I think I'm a little bit more passionate about is my two dogs, but it's, it's awfully close. <laughs> That's amazing, dude. Uh, yeah, I don't think I've ever played with a ball. I've seen a few clips from the States, but it does does strike me as a very American game. I'm a I'm a soccer player through and through, so nice. not, not very good with the old hand-eye coordination, mate. So I think I would suck at wiffle ball. Oh, Foot-eye coordination, though, uh, don't you think? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I could probably get around it, maybe. Yeah. Uh, I'll, have yeah, to, I'll have to see if there's a little league out here. But I appreciate you, you sharing, man. And I always like to get to know the guests a little bit. And it's really interesting to hear what they share with regards to their passions. So appreciate you being being open and and plugging that and i'm i'm excited to have a chat with you dude like my my intention for this conversation as we spoke about off air is to to dive into the manosphere masculinity and i really want to talk about how the ideology espoused by those online spaces impacts men's relationships with the people around them because i i personally think that it's doing more harm than good i don't know if it's doing really a lot of good at all to be honest but but I'd be interested to unpack some of the nuance with you. And, and for those that maybe don't know what the Manosphere is or what these online communities are, I was curious, man, if you had a, a succinct way of summing up what the Manosphere is. Yeah. Um, I, well, I think uh, I, I want to start by saying that I think the fact that it's so hard to wrap our heads around a definition of the Manosphere, I think that's by design. Like, I think that's part of the strategy where, I mean, if you talk to me, I'm going to tell you that the Manosphere is a launch pad or a springboard or a cushion uh, that vulnerable young, and when I say young, I mean like between 14 and 24, vulnerable young men can land on that will eventually bounce them down what we used to call the alt-right pipeline uh, is now more traditionally referred to as like the reactionary right pipeline. Uh, and we can talk about specific examples later on, but I think that's how I would succinctly attempt to define it. But I think part of it is that there's so much strategic ambiguity in even just defining what the manosphere is. That's part of the problem because there's so much plausible deniability and, and like I said, intentional ambiguity that it affords the people in that space the opportunity to say, well, I'm not really doing anything wrong. There are, there are people who are misinterpreting my advice and they're doing wrong stuff, but I'm doing good. And I think that, you know, learning how to spot that is a really big part of defining it and also, of course, deconstructing it. Mm, and I've heard a lot of infighting from various figures within the umbrella term of the manosphere as well, where they're saying, these people aren't part of it, or this person isn't truly a men's rights activist, or this person isn't representative of who we are. So even from within, there's not a lot of agreement about what the overall community is and maybe even what some of the beliefs and ideologies that they perpetuate. There's not a lot of agreement on those, those belief systems as well. It's a few things that overlap, but I, I've definitely seen from some of the people that I follow, there's, there's some argumentation that's happening within those spaces. I read a really interesting book by Laura Bates called Men Who Hate Women, and she goes on a bit of a 
chronology of the various subgroups that would maybe fall underneath the umbrella term of the manosphere. And she starts off with incels or involuntary celibates, and she moves into pickup artists, and then she moves into men's rights activists. And, and one of the things that I found interesting was the way that she talks about the rebranding of some of those communities as well. Pickup artists in particular have like, it's no longer cool or edgy to call yourself a pickup artist, but if you go and call yourself a dating coach or the seduction community, like the, the revamping and the rebranding then is like made it a bit more tolerable or, or acceptable or, or even accessible to people as well. Right. So I think that's like been an interesting thing to notice over the course of the last decade is the way that this amorphous online community has shifted and changed to keep up with the time, so to speak, with, as more things are becoming more and more mainstream. And I, I personally think we'll see something maybe similar with the way that the quote unquote incel community is going to maybe rebrand or revamp or shift their language a little bit in the next couple of years as the pickup artist community did. Um, don't know. That's just like a little observation that I have made. And, and I'm, I'm curious, do you, do you notice, I guess what I want to ask is, do you notice similarities between those subgroups of the manosphere with regards to belief systems? Is there points of ideology that you see are, are familiar and similar across all those, all those subgroups? Oh yeah. Uh, I, I would say definitely so. Um, and I think some of the overlap is more, uh, uh profound in some spaces than in others. Uh, the incel community, I mean, if you get into the history of the incel community, it's actually fascinating. Are you familiar with like the concept of black pilling as opposed to red pilling? Yeah, I am. Okay, good. So, so just to briefly summarize, right? Like red pilling is ironically uh, this allegory for like seeing the world for what it really is. Whereas black pilling is like relational determinism where it's like, I was born inferior. I'll never be with anyone. I suck. And therefore I deserve to be miserable as does everyone else. Right? So, so the incel community is like the original black pill community. If you go back and find some of the original message boards on which they operated, they were actually much more like passive as opposed to these days where they're much more aggressive um, and, and, and angry at the world. It wasn't always like that. And I think we saw like this sort of marrying of black pill philosophy and red pill philosophy that got us into this sort of like blood colored pill <laughs> where we are right now. Um, but I see a ton of overlap and that's because they're all operating with the same set of tendrils. You know what I mean? I think about the manosphere as kind of like an octopus, right? They all have their different like legs with the suction cups and, and, and this and that, but they're all at the end of the day, part of the same body. And that's kind of part of like where the infighting comes from because they don't want to admit that they're of the same cloth. And we get into a lot of the, uh, what's, what's referred to as the, the true, the no true Scotsman fallacy, uh, which, which in short basically says like, well, you know, if I belong to a group and I see someone else who belongs to that group doing a thing that I disagree with, instead of being like, uh oh, there's problematic people in my group who do bad stuff. I'm more likely to say, no, they're not really a member of the group that I'm a member of. And I think that that's a really important fallacy to understand when we think about the ways in which these communities fight each other. Um, it, it, it is not rooted in good faith. It is rooted in self-preservation, which is the underlying thread of a lot of these guys in, in the first place. Yeah. And I'm glad that you brought up red pill philosophy. 
because from the way that I understand it, that would be the through line of a lot of these communities, right? Is the, the belief systems perpetuated by what might be termed red pill ideology. And so I was wondering if you were able to expand on what some of the, let's say the tenets of red pill philosophy are. Yeah. And they're all, for lack of a better term, they're all unironically ironic because uh, as we may as we may know, the term red pill is a reference to the movie The Matrix. And The Matrix is an allegory for being trans. The, the women who wrote The Matrix are twins. They are both trans. And it is about being tr like, that's what The Matrix is about, which is ironic because people who are red, quote unquote, red pilled in 2023 typically have disdain for that community. So they have uh, reappropriated, we'll say, they've reappropriated what it means to, quote, take the red pill, which is essentially to, like, have your eyes opened to the reality of the world. And this means something different uh, depending on who you are. For example, people in the QAnon cult consider themselves pilled, right, because they see the, the world for what it really is as run by the deep state cabal uh of uh you know i mean the deeper you go it always comes back to the jews right it, it's always the protocols of the elders of zion so, so that's one extremist ideology then you've got the dating coaches who their version of being red-pilled is more like the abuse of evolutionary psychology to try to make points about how men and women both behave and ought to behave and of course they're always profoundly inaccurate but what they do is they, they, you know, they bastardize studies and research to try to make it seem like men and women have these pre-programmed elements uh, that, that make them, you know, women only go for jerks or women only go for big buff guys, which if that were true, I would be SOL for the rest of my life. And, you know, fortunately, I've had a very successful and fulfilling dating career. So I don't think that that's necessarily true. Um, but as you can see, just in those two examples alone, the term red pill can mean something very, very different. But the, the long and short of it is you have in some way had your eyes opened to the quote unquote realities of the world that really are just a convenient excuse for, in this case, you know, the men in question to avoid, uh, you know, self-reflection and introspection and taking personal responsibility for the fact that they might just be a piece of shit. You know what I mean? And then that's why things are going poorly in their lives. Yeah, and I find the matrix analogy so, it's just so interesting to me how they have misappropriated it. Because I also think of Andrew Tate talking about the matrix, for example, when escaping the matrix and things like that. And so Ugh. the way that it's been been used and, and divorced from its, its context, and I think media literacy is dead for the most part for a lot of people. So there's a, yeah, an interesting conversation to be had there. But I guess my... What I want to dive into, I suppose, is some of the key misconceptions that are propagated by red pill philosophy about relationships and masculinity. What are, what are some of the things that the men in these spaces are adhering to with regards to how they show up in the world? Sure. Um, again, these are very unironically ironic qualities. Um, from what I have been able to glean, it is truly centered around something along the lines of like self-support, like doing right by yourself, being um, quote-unquote alpha, meaning being strong, being a decision maker, having wealth, building that wealth. Um, and it's this intermeshing of hyper-individuality with several select qualities of masculinity 
like, for example, aggression, dominance, victory. But what they forget is that you can be masculine and be a caretaker as well, right? They'll say things like provider, right? And, and, and the juxtaposition of those two words is dramatically different. And in reality, masculinity in and of itself is a neutral concept. It is a series, it, it, a series of behaviors, a series of tendencies, a series of qualities that you can use or misuse, right? And uh, in reality, all folks have elements of masculinity and femininity to them. Um, and so, you know, th this is why uh, a lot of the Manosphere spaces exist in the gym, right? Because it's a space where things like aggression, dominance, violence, strength, perseverance, they can all emerge through observable physical practices. And th this makes our lizard brain, it, it scratches that itch. You know what I mean? Like we can see it, we understand it, it's right in front of us, it involves picking things up and putting them back down. We love that. I love weight training. <laughs> I love picking things up and putting them back down. Um, but it is also a convenient excuse to neglect and starve the necessary feminine elements that come with being a man. Like for example, learning how to be a caretaker, learning empathy, practicing patience, being nurturing, those are all deeply, deeply rewarding. And so ironically, the individuals who practice these, these hyper-masculine behaviors are depriving themselves of completeness because they are not addressing the feminine elements that they need in order to be a, a whole person. And this is probably why they feel these massive voids and lack of purpose because they are only attending to one part of the spectrum and purposefully neglecting the other that that's as short as i can get with it <laughs> yeah no, i know i appreciate you you explaining that man and i think what what i want to be clear about because i i've seen this i i've got clients and i've got friends who i would probably identify as being in those spaces both online and and also living them out in in real life as well and something that i am mindful of doing because i care about these men right they're they're people in my life that i have relationships with and and that i want to see thrive in their lives and so what I'm mindful of doing when I'm speaking with them specifically is, and maybe we can, we can go into this a bit is there's nothing wrong with wanting to better your health, for example, and getting, get stronger and wanting to take some personal accountability and being emotionally resilient, right? Which is a lot of the boiled down. That's a lot of what the, the, the men in these spaces are, are preaching in amongst some other misogynistic takes. And so when I speak to guys who I know are in those spaces, I'll, I'll, I'll be mindful of trying not to shut that down because I'm, I'm the same. I, I was just at the gym this morning. I, I like going to the gym. I like feeling strong. I like having some emotional resiliency. And, and I'm also, as you rightly pointed out, I'm a father as well. So I'm also really wanting to stoke that that nurturing caretaker element of my life as well. And I feel really fulfilled when I'm crawling around on all fours, roaring like a lion, playing with my little two-year-old and, and doing the things that are important to me as well. Like I'm an advocate for men exploring their sensuality and their pleasure and things that like a lot of these guys in these spaces might dismiss or belittle. And because I think as we pointed out that the wholeness of a human being is what's important to cultivate, not just like the flattening of these guys in these spaces to just stoic, emotionless gym rats. Right. And that's, that's, and so I'm, I'm, what I'm getting to the point here is I'm 
mindful of not dismissing the things that are valuable to these guys so that we can have conversations with them and about them to bring them back a little bit. Because what I've, what I've found is, especially online, and, and this is a problem online in general, is people that will take the piss out of Manosphere dudes or really rip into them and essentially make fun of them and that only pushing them further into those spaces, right? And that's not what we want, right? We don't want more guys going into those. And then they get the opportunity to play the victim card, right? And say, look at us, we're being crucified for speaking the truth. That's something I've heard so often from these guys. They use the quote unquote attacks, which are really just very valid critiques and criticisms as ways to bolster their either following or bolster their credentials within those spaces. Like the more that they're critiqued, the more that they're revered in those spaces. And so, yeah, I don't know where I'm going with all this, just to say that there's nothing inherently wrong with wanting to get stronger, wanting to have emotional resilience, wanting to take a personal accountability. It's maybe the community space and even wanting community is there's nothing inherently wrong with wanting to be in a space where there's people that share uh, a lived experience with you that share a um, you know, common set of values. We seek out community as human beings. That's that's also nothing inherently wrong with that. But when it gets wrapped up in a lot of the, um, you were talking about relationship determinism from the, the black pill perspective or the misogynistic worldview that comes from the red pill perspective, I think, yeah, I, I think that's where it becomes problematic. So the, the inherent and underlying things that guys are craving, I don't think is, I don't want to shame that because I think that's valuable to want community, to want to better yourself and things like that. But when it gets exploited and those guys get siphoned off into these spaces where there's these, for the one of a better word, grifters trying to make money off of them by pressing on those insecurities, by pressing on those, those inherent wants that they have. I think that's when it becomes really, really toxic. Anyway, I couldn't formulate a question out of that, man. Just wanted to share and see if you had any thoughts about, about that. No, I largely agree with you. And I think a lot of it is like context and relationship specific. Like, for example, I have several, I'll, I'll classify them as friends who are extremely uh, red-pilled. Um, there's no getting through to them, not from me at least, right? Um, because I am the type of man who they believe is quote-unquote less of a man. We can talk about that later. Um, but I do have friends who uh, simply have not been exposed right, to some of the more complex and nuanced elements of like the art of doing gender. Um, and this bleeds out into many different areas. And because, you know, I care for them and I love them and I respect them, I want to be able to talk with them about these difficult issues. And sometimes that means we butt, we butt heads. And sometimes it means we find places of agreement. Um, you know, as long as the conversation is in good faith, progress can be made. On the other hand, I mean, you talk about like, you know, the the victimization or the self-victimization, right, of a lot of these men. That's a big reason why I stopped posting um, on TikTok in the way that I was because, well, one, it was bad for my mental health. I was, I was not doing well. Uh, but two, I really questioned loudly the extent to which I was actually making a substantive difference or whether or not I was just saying things to an audience that already knew the things that I was saying and was just looking for validation, which by the way, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I don't know. Cause there are also a few times where I, you know, approached some of these 
toxic men with facts and information and statistics and got apologies out of them. And that's a really rewarding experience because they're not apologizing to me, the individual. They're apologizing to the community who they offended. And so that's very rewarding, but that's so few and far between, you know what I mean? And, you know, I think a lot of these men, the only language that they speak is like the language of oppositionalism or, or, or like, you know what I mean? Like the only way to get through them is to humiliate them uh, because that, that kind of takes down that, that wall that they're holding up and exposes them. And then, then they have to do some of the thinking. But like you say, the problem is they never really get to the thinking part. They just get exposed, it's embarrassing, and then they cover up and cry out that they're victims. So I know you said you didn't get much of a question. I know that that's not much of an answer, but I, I, I tend to agree with where you're at. I think that the role of your relationship with the man or men in question matters a lot. Yeah, and that brings me to something that I heard on the, it was the, the book was called Conspirituality by Derek Barres and a few other people. But one of the things they talk about was how do you help the people in your life come back from the edge of cults, essentially? And now you, know, you mentioned the, the QAnon space, and that's one of the things they, they dive into a lot. It's like if you've got a, a Q follower in your family or your friend group, and you want to just bring them back into normalcy, one of the things that they speak about, and this comes from cult reprogramming kind of approaches, is, is be supportive. Offer them offer them a compassionate, loving space for them to, to, to talk about what's going on for themselves, inquire about what it is that's going on in their lives, have that loving, non-judgmental space for them to come to. Because a lot of times in those cult spaces, they're afraid and anxious and feeling, you know, like that they're insignificant and all these sort of things. And I, I, find that a really poignant thing to to bring up in the context of the manosphere as well because if you've got people in your life and again as you mentioned relationally if these people are close to you and they're in those spaces and I, I see this with like my friends my male clients a lot of those guys are afraid they're 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 afraid of not being man enough they're they're fearful of the world around them because of the all the things that are happening for women or minorities and things like that there's a lot of fear and tension and existential dread about their place in the world. And so being able to have, again, conversations with these men that I'm in relationship with being like, talk to me, man, I'm here for you. I'm, I'm supporting you. I'm not trying to get you to buy something to become an alpha male. I'm, I'm here just like having a heart to heart with you and, and having the capacity to do that, I think is um, really valuable. Again, that's a very microcosm space to be in, right? It's, it's, that's not something you can really do on a large scale, unfortunately, because it is a very personal relationship that you have with, with each of those people to be able to hold that space for them. But I think that's relevant for people that are listening. If they know men in their lives that are in those misogynistic online subgroups is inquire. One of the things that I, I speak to parents about, actually, I, I get dads and some mums, but typically dads reach out to me and say like, Hey, my, my teenage son is on TikTok. He's watching a bunch of Andrew Tate stuff. What do I do? And one of the things that I like to share is I, I, I when I got my hair cut recently and sitting in the uh, chair next to me was a teenage boy. He was in his school uniform. So I know he's still that age. And his mum was chatting with him while he was getting his hair cut. And he was talking about how he follows Andrew Tate online and loves the stuff that he talks about. And his mum 
shut it down. Was like, he's an idiot. You're an idiot for following. That's so stupid. Why would you do that? And me sitting next to this boy, I was like, oh, that's only going to really push him a little bit further into those spaces. And and not to throw shade on, on his mum or anything, but the, the capacity to go, all right, tell me about it. What, what do you like that he says? What's resonating with you? What's going on in your life that makes you feel like you, you can relate to this guy. And there's been a lot of surveys done here in Australia of school age kids as well. And, and there's a good 30 to 60% of teenage boys that say that they relate to Andrew Tate, that they agree with the stuff that he says in school. And it's like the, the advice there for, for parents and for teachers is to go, all right, boys, what is it that's resonating with you? Why is this, why is this speaking to you and have that again, relational opportunity to, to bring them back in and, and hear them and talk to them. Because I, I feel like a lot of guys, one of the reasons they go into those spaces is because they don't feel like their experiences are validated. They don't feel like their pain is being seen by society at large. And so they go to these, they gravitate towards these spaces because it's very explicitly and specifically being pointed out that they have pain. And then that's what's being exploited in my opinion. So yeah, again, no question there, but want to just pop that in and see if you had anything to share. Well, yeah. So Andrew Tate is, is an especially unique case. He's different from a guy like Jordan Peterson. Uh, he's different from a guy like Joe Rogan, where he is, I mean, he is a full-fledged, I'm not, look, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I do know enough about narcissistic tendencies to understand that he is a full-blown narcissist, right? And narcissistic, charismatic leaders are primed for uh, cult leadership, right? So the good news is, these young boys who watch Andrew Tate and relate to him and they like him, that shit goes away. You know what I mean? What happens is you meet, you know, you're a teenage boy, you meet a young girl, you have your first kiss, you fool around as teenagers tend to do, and then you go, what the fuck was that guy talking about? Like that? No, right? Because you meet women. It reminds me of, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deviate just a little bit. In the United States, there was a, a tremendous surge of post 9-11 Islamophobia that happened in the flyover states, in the, in the center states. And what the researchers who studied that found was that the reason that Islamophobia was so escalated in those spaces is because they'd never met a Muslim person. They just didn't know, they, they didn't know. It's so easy to vilify people when you've never had to look a member of that group in the eyes. And, and, and have a conversation with them. So goes it for 12, 13, 14 year old boys who have never had a girlfriend, you know what I mean? And then you get one and you're like, wait a minute, uh, this is not what Andrew Tate explained to me. So that can snap you out of it. But I, I, I think, you know, in, in your story about the mother and her son, it, 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 it shouldn't be the mother's responsibility to do that. That is, and, and I don't know if this kid had a father in his life, but there needs to be a man there to deprogram that kid because he's probably chronically online and has been taught to disobey women through the, that sort of repetitive conditioning. And so he is only willing at that stage to listen to a man. And so what you need is a compassionate, like you said, an understanding man who's, who's going to say, okay, tell me the reasons why you like him. What do you like about him? Is it because he drives a Bugatti? 
right? Well, you know that that's not really his, right? He doesn't own that Bugatti. He, he leased it so that he could look cool for you. How does that make you feel? And you can pick apart his, because he's, he's porcelain, right? He's just, you, you flick him off the edge and he shatters. So if, if you can have like a patient enough man, right? That authority figure who he's programmed to respect. Um, if you can have that there for him or them, it helps. Um, but the good news is, like I said, for the most part, when people grow up, most of us get out of that phase, right? Uh, we, we mature and, and you know, the, the data are clear, men take longer to mature than do women. Uh, so it, it might take a while. To that end, I don't view someone like Andrew Tate as an existential threat to gender norms in the way that I view someone like Donald Trump who appointed three Supreme Court judges that stripped away women's rights to bodily autonomy. That's an existential threat to like gendered relations. Andrew Tate is just a prick, you know? Um, and there will always be another Andrew Tate out there. So it's the sort of thing where it's like, yeah, if you've got someone in your life who's, who's listening to him, you can take it upon yourself, especially if you're a man in an authoritative position, you can take it upon yourself to use what's known as like the retail approach, where you, you have a series of one-on-one -on -one conversations that are designed to diffuse and disarm those talking points. But other than that, in a lot of cases, you can kind of let it just play itself out. I think there's a really interesting book that talks about Trump and his relationship or parasocial relationship with the manosphere and these online spaces. It, it's called, It Came From Something Awful. It's a really interesting book about the and the, the the subtitle of the book is how Donald Trump was memed into office. And there's a really yeah interesting look at the online spaces, specifically a lot of these men in these online spaces and how they relate with, in a parasocial way with Donald Trump. So yeah, that's a little digression, but I wanted to to bring it back into it's something that I've heard people say, because, and I, I, I've said this as well, I'll, I'll be, I'll be upfront and say, I, I've said that we, and I say we collectively here as progressive leftist, healthy masculinity propagators, losing the fight for disaffected young men. And one of the solutions I've heard to that is, oh, we need a, we need our own version of Andrew Tate and we need a counter or like equivalent to, to Andrew Tate. And so, and part of me is like, sure, maybe a really charismatic male authoritative figure who espouses a bunch of stuff about healthy masculinity and emotional vulnerability and things like that would be good. But then I'm also like, mm, if you're still getting into a space where it's prescriptive and, and exploiting men's insecurities about being a man and things like that. So I'm, I'm curious to know what your take is on the, we need an Andrew Tate on the left kind of argument. Yeah, I, I tend to disavow all cultish behaviors, uh, regardless of it, if it, I mean, you gotta remember Jim Jones began as a leftist, as a civil rights activist. So you can get into a fascist state from the left, like it does happen. Um, I don't know, are you familiar with uh, Joey Swole? I do know Joey Swole, yes. I'm not super familiar with him much more than just his videos on TikTok. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the extent to which I'm familiar with him as well. I mean, he is like a buff boy, and I've seen multiple videos of him decrying the sorts of behaviors that guys like Andrew Tate do. 
I think guys like that are solid band-aids, but I don't think that you're going to be able to like establish a super macho leftist like cult-like figure to dissuade young men uh, from from doing these these things because guys like Andrew Tate rely on faux populism in order to uh, in order to make their points in in, in order to garner an audience and if you fight that sort of fire with a different kind of populist fire you're gonna set yourself up for failure it makes me think of the 2016 election when a lot of the left rallied behind bernie sanders and then he lost as you know leftists tend to do in the united states and a lot of people i heard threads of right-wing authoritarianism in the things that they were saying it's been rigged he's been tricked we should install him like we should riot and i'm like what are you doing like these are the same violent aggressive behaviors that we all acknowledge are wrong so i don't think that i think it's trying to ascribe an individual solution to a systemic issue what we really need is an education overhaul and it begins like you alluded to earlier with media literacy we need courses in elementary school on media literacy um, and on on fallacy on how to how to locate this so that when someone gets to Andrew Tate they go oh no he's doing he's doing this and he's doing that and and and, and that's I know for a fact that that is an, a behavior that is inaccurate fallacious and I don't want to be a part of it so it kind of like a nip it in the bud um, as, when it comes to like turning people who are already pilled. I think you've got the answer, right? Be supportive. Don't mock them. If people are having questions, entertain them. Allow them to come to conclusions on their own. Because remember, when you're in a cult, in order for you to question one thing, you also need to question every decision you made that led you to the one thing that you're considering questioning. And that is very difficult to do. Very, very, very difficult indeed. So a gentle touch ironically at the interpersonal level is is probably what's needed and then a more thorough and rough societal systemic touch right you can you can wield the iron fist um through education and healthcare, especially mental health care yeah i really appreciate that element man i think that's really important and there's something you said before which i would like to circle back to was the way that andrew tate for example I'm using him as a bit of a figurehead for the manosphere, and I recognize that he, it's, it's not a monolith, but just as for the sake of having this conversation, his use of a faux populism to garner an audience and to have people on his side. And what's interesting is, and I heard who was talking about this, Robert Evans was talking about it on Behind the Bastards. He was talking I love about that card. That's one of my it's, favorites. Yeah, it's, it's, a, good, it's a good big, one, man. It's my big top Robert one. Evans fan. Yeah. And he, he was doing this uh, podcast about Andrew Tate specifically, and a lot of these guys in the, the influencer sphere of the manosphere and how they'll, he, obviously he was, he's bringing class consciousness into the conversation. And so how there's this acknowledgement by people like Tate, that there are elites that are trying to keep you within the matrix that have class solidarity, essentially, right? They're all on the same page just to keep you down and the way to affect change in your life is to make money by purchasing a degree in Hustlers University, where the fuck he's selling and, and to make more money and to put other people down so that you can 
essentially he's, he's talking about like transitioning class, right? Going, going up in, in, a, in a bracket. And it's so, it's just like interesting that they are using classist, you know, in a, in a very uh, misappropriated way as they kind of do with regards to red pill and allegories for transness. And so it's like, to get to your point around education, I would love to see men's coaches and I, I run in the men's coaching circle and I'm always just like surreptitiously trying to recommend classist analysis books to them. And, and here's like a little thing from Marx and stuff around the, the modern day revisions of, of the way Marxist kind of talking points can be looked at through society. And it's just, there's such an aversion to it. I'll, I'll joke with my friends that I'm a communist and they'll just groan and roll their eyes and, and I'll talk to them about the latest books that I've read. And partly it's for me, cause I find it interesting and I want to learn and, and be educated, but also it's partly because I know no one else in my circle of male friends is thinking about that and having those conversations. And so I really try and bring it in to those groups and we have a men's group and I love a lot of the guys are men's coaches. And so, yeah, I would love to see more male influencers, men's coaches read theory and then realize, oh shit, it's like, oh, that's what these guys are doing. You know, again, no formulated question there, but I'm just having fun nerding out with you and, and curious to know if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah. I think if more of those red pill alpha bro guys sat down and read a little Judith Butler or bell hooks that it would make up meaningful changes to their lives. Um, uh, Naomi Klein recently wrote a book called doppelganger, which she, I have not read, but I have heard her in numerous interviews describe the synopsis. Um, and one of the factors that she talks about in that book is this idea of right feeling, wrong facts. And that was such a click for me. It, it made me think of Andrew Tate because he does that with his faux populism, right feeling. There is an elitist class that is uh, uh, dedicated to maintaining the status quo. Uh, the problem is that they don't meet in a room, right? It, in some dark cloaks to discuss their plans for world domination. It is this silently agreed upon hegemonic, right? Silent power, this hegemonic structure that seeks to keep, um, like, like, you know, like, I don't want to, I don't want to say it's necessarily inherently Christo-fascistic, but it is the idea of like, well, if you don't, if you don't sit in here and accept the Christian version of capitalism that we offer, we will get fashy if we have to. So it, this idea of right feeling wrong facts really resonates with me as it relates to the manosphere because yeah, there are a lot of uh, 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 gendered norms and expectations that harm men. Like for example, the fact that men are discouraged from being anything other than stoic. The fact that certain emotions are discouraged uh, when it comes to men both experiencing and expressing them. Um, but the facts are incorrect. Right? The fact is not that we are being controlled by the matrix and the solution is not to quote unquote break out of the matrix. The, I mean, the long-term solution is to go vote for people who are class conscious, right? And so, but, but people don't like that because that's a multi-generational change. Um, if you look at the social and economic successes, as, as I would describe them as someone who's, uh, you know, I would describe myself as like a leftist, social democrat is, is how i describe myself if if you look at the successes we've had for example the new deal civil rights in america the the journey to women's suffrage those took decades they didn't just happen right they they took many 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 years and also required many concessions 
and it sucks that it has to be that way, but it's just so much easier to listen to a guy who says, no, <laughs> you don't need to wait 25, 30, 40 years to see meaningful change in your life at the systemic level. $49.99 a month, you take my classes, I will bring you to a place of prosperity because I am the best. And that's just easier for people to process. You know what I mean? It, it takes less cognitive energy to, to just accept that, that it does, to accept the reality that if we're going to have meaningful systemic change to this so-called, you know, cabal or whatever, that it, it requires like participating in society. Mm. And and within that is collaboration, right? It's it's, it's coming together. It's having conversations. It, there, it, there's a collaborative approach, right? And that is not what's espoused by the manosphere, right? It's a very individualistic approach. It's like you pull yourself and, up by and your isolationism. Yes, totally. Yeah. The, the lone wolf mentality, I, I often think. And the way that my male friends uh, and I have like co-opted that term is rather than lone wolfing it, we co-wolf it now. So we get the wolf pack together. I always thought that was such an interesting phrase because a lone wolf, like a lone wolf in nature describes an overly aggressive, problematic wolf who was kicked out of the pack because that wolf was putting the pack in danger. It is not a good thing to be a lone wolf. It means you are a danger to those around you and nobody likes you. <laughs> and we could go, we could go on a whole tangent about some of the data from oh. uh, some of the research, I suppose, from David Meech, for example. Oh, David, and poor David I Meech. I feel so bad for him. I feel so bad for Still him. trying to get his book pulled. Oh my God, that poor guy. He didn't mean it. He didn't know. You know what I mean? He is so, uh, yeah, that's, that's an unfortunate thing. I have, I have a post cause I try and do social media posts where I debunk some of these talking points. And so one of the ones I did recently was about Bateman's anisogamy principles, for example, and how flawed those are and how they've been, as you mentioned at the top of the podcast, misappropriated by these manosphere influences. They're, they're misrepresenting the, the research or they're bastardizing the research to fit their narrative. And then when you look at it, it's like, it's not actually accurate at all to begin with. And so they're, they're finding the, they're misreading studies to, to try and fit their narrative. I did the same thing with the, a post around Jordan Peterson and lobsters, for example. Oh and God, was, the hierarchy. Yeah. Yeah. And so citing some actual marine biologists and, and not someone who's, I don't want to go too deep into Peterson because we've only got 10 or so minutes left and that could be a whole episode in and of itself. But I, I, <laughs> yeah. think, I think it might be it interesting be. To, to ask you. Because you mentioned Joe Rogan, Jordan Peterson, Andrew Tate as some figureheads. And I have heard so many times from people, again, from my mates, from from the men in my life, that Jordan Peterson is not part of the manosphere. Like they, they don't see him as being similar to the Joe Rogan or the Andrew Tate or the other people in those spaces. And so I'm curious if you're able to speak to why you're bringing Jordan Peterson into a conversation related to the manosphere. Yeah, Jordan Peterson, I, the analogy I would use for him is if you consider the road to Hades, uh, in order to get to Hades, you must cross the River Styx. And in order to cross the River Styx, you've got to pay a fee to the individual whose name I forget, who, who the, the, the captain of the boat that you get into to cross the River Styx. That's Jordan Peterson. He's not in the realm of Hades. He just takes you there, right? And so his uh, proselytizations are specifically ambiguous enough so that he can distance himself from that whole manosphere while also guiding you to them. I mean, we're talking about a guy here who is making 80 grand a month in his Patreon 
um, that is a red flag. I mean, look, if people like your content, that's great. But when your content is designed to uh, uh, isolate and, uh, you know, provide life advice to a large group of people like that, it should be something that immediately makes your hairs stand on end. And then, of course, if you dig into the things that he's saying, this man is a clinical psychologist. He's, he's been published on over 100 research articles. He knows exactly what he's doing when he, when he feeds misinformation to people. So if you, if you look into his claims, one of the big things that you'll never see him do, you will never, ever see him cite a specific source, which is something he knows how to do very, very well. And so the natural question there should be, well, why not? Why isn't he citing those sources? And the answer is because the things he's saying are not borne out by the evidence, are not borne out by the data. As a result, you can't really take him seriously. And so then you must ask the natural question after that is, well, then why is he doing what he's doing? Perhaps individual profit, more likely because he has a series of extreme uh, mental health issues uh, that in part require a desperate need to fulfill his, uh, 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 you know, supposed purpose. He, he desperate for attention, desperate for validation. Um, and unfortunately, uh, because of his status and privilege, he saw uh, an entry point uh, in, in being the sort of like the guiding Sherpa that will take you down that red pill road. And I'll say just as an example, if you go on YouTube and you watch 10, 15 Jordan Peterson videos, you are going to be in a world of red-pilled transphobia almost immediately right after that. And so it's not that I think he's doing these things. What I'm saying is reality reflects that he is doing these things. So his intent doesn't even matter. I would argue that he's doing it in intentionally, but it doesn't matter because he's still doing it. Yeah, yeah. I've read an interesting article that was written by his mentor, and I forget his name, talking about how Peterson originally wants oh, yeah. to become a preacher and, and start a, a church. Still does. And yeah, and so I was like, that makes sense with regards to the way that he, he runs his sermons and, and things like that. Yeah, it's a great article. I believe it's called, uh, I used to I used to like love Jordan Peterson. Now I think he's dangerous. I've read it too. I forget the guy's name, but he's he unfortunately passed away. But, oh, okay, yeah. Uh, it's a really, really, really good article and good insight into that desperate need of Jordan Peterson's to seek validation and to seek out an audience. Yeah. Thank you for, for speaking into that a little bit. And I'm again, mindful of not going too deep down that rabbit hole. Cause I know, for example, you've got a whole series of videos and I've done a whole bunch of posts about him, but something that was asked of me when I did a post talking about the lobster hierarchy stuff, for example, was the comment was something to the effect of, oh, this is just like one example. And it's like one story that he's using to paint an overall larger picture. And so I came back and I was like, look, I see this as him building a house, right? The house being his overall philosophy and the bricks that he uses are these stories about lobsters or about cleaning your room or about whatever. And when you start finding out that these bricks are actually made from sand rather than from cement, right? Then you start to realize that the whole house that he's building is going to come crashing down. It's, it's, it's not a solid foundation for, for building a, a philosophy upon because he's building with all these things that aren't accurate. And there's a really great video series by Cass Eris on YouTube, and she's a psychologist as well. And she talks about his book and she just goes through line by line, essentially looking at the, the citations that he does offer and going into those and being like, well, that doesn't really support what he's saying here. And then going through all the other pages where there are no citations, it's just him 
espousing his opinion, which is fine, but the way that it's presented is like, this is what the research tells us. This is what the data tells us. And then there's nothing to, he's not citing anything there. And so she goes, look, this is actually what the research tells us and how it contradicts the things that he's saying. So it's a really great fine tooth and comb. I think she's got like 40 videos for the first book. I was going to say, I, I watched some yeah, of it. It's a long. Yeah. I had to watch it on like two times X because <laughs> yeah. there's so much. And that's the point, right? That's the point. He's got his simple book, 12 rules for something, something, who cares? In order to debunk everything he says in there, you need to make a 40 video series. That's the point. It's easier for people to just swallow his pill, pun intended, than it is to actually dig in. And that comes down to the, the, the persuasive literature, which maybe we could talk about at a different time. But basically, there's, there's two basic modes in which we process. And the mode that he offers is something called heuristic processing where we just go based off of what we can see and hear and the immediate things in front of us. That's so much easier for people to do. It makes us feel good. It makes us feel safe. We save our mental energy doing it and it, it can have some disastrous consequences. But yeah, if you're willing to actually listen to the arguments, you eventually get into a space where you realize that the things that he's saying are simply inaccurate, just, you know, full, full fledged lies at times and, and half truths at others. And I think that's true of a larger portion of these guys that are influential within the manosphere is they'll just say a bunch of stuff. I know Roller Tomasi, for example, his whole thing is citing graphs and things like that. And it's like, you made that graph, mate. That's, yeah. that's not coming from <laughs> yeah. anywhere in particular. That's, that's just what you created. And so the, the pseudoscientific way of explaining the red pill ideologies and philosophies, I think is, is, and again, because I work with men every day, I know guys are draw to that way of talking. That's a very stereotype and a generalization, but working with dudes every day, I know that if I want to get guys on board with what it is that I'm sharing, I got to bring some data. I got to bring some research. That's what lands for them. And, and then again, it might be a bit of a selection bias because I do intentionally try to work with those types of guys, but it, it's disingenuous, right? It's really fucking disingenuous for a lot of these guys to, to frame the way that they're talking as research backed and evidence-based. And, and I think it's, yeah, I think so. I think part of that education piece is a little bit of how to read research as well. And I don't want to pretend that I'm an expert at all because I'm not, but I know how to comb through an article and be like, oh, okay, there's some stuff in here that you know, is probably going to be relevant. Oh, that's, there, there's maybe a bias there. Like I can pick up a few of those things just by virtue of being able to read and, and having gone to, and I've had the, the privilege to be able to go to get a postgraduate degree and do a little bit of that, but just even fundamental how to understand research would be, I think, really beneficial for a lot of people. But then I've also got the time to do that, right? Then I recognize I have the privilege of being able to go and read the research that he's citing because I do have the time because I do live a pretty privileged life. And so then that's another piece of the puzzle as well. And a lot of these guys are lower socioeconomic status dudes who are buying into this, this worldview. So yeah, just, I sometimes feel a little bit defeated, man. Yeah, no, I mean, you gotta, you gotta just keep doing what you know is 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 good and right and correct um yeah no i agree especially when it comes to like the whole like men you know wanting to see data and wanting to be objective that kind of thing one big part of unpacking all of that is is what i teach in my research methods courses where we we sure we talk about statistics we also talk about rhetorical criticism and we talk about qualitative methods and one of the big things that i'm really keen on is explaining that no one type of data collection is inherently better than the other, right? It's, it's different ways of understanding the world. Um, and, and, and it's so 
so important uh, because if you, if you, for example, listen to people who are critics of feminist theory or critical race theory, they will use charged words like, oh, well, they just use narrative or they just tell stories. There's no actual data behind them. And it's like, well, no, there's plenty of qualitative people who have looked into the factors that these folks are talking about. There's plenty of quantitative people who have done the same. So it's this idea of like making sure that you're being objective and also part of being objective means understanding that the human experience is inherently subjective. It's why my ideological philosophy is post-positivist and not positivist. Right? Positivism is just there is one truth. We all see it. It's observable. Post-positivism is like, yeah, there are truths, lowercase t truths in the world. And there's also individual and societal fluctuation that we need to be aware of. Yeah. Thank you for speaking to that, man. And I'm mindful of time, dude. I know we've got a couple minutes left. So what I wanted to ask you is, maybe to close down this conversation, we're not getting through to the people that are deep into the red pill, right? They've swallowed it. It's, they're not spitting it back out anytime soon. So what I think is maybe more relevant is people that are listening to this who are possibly on the fence or people that are listening who they know have people in their lives, men in their lives who are in those spaces. What is something that they can start to do to, I guess, move out of some of those spaces, like not be sucked in further? All right. I'm, I'm going to use some of their language. Uh, I think that's a really good way to reach them. Do some girly shit. Do some girly shit. See how it makes you feel. Paint your nails. Put on a, put on a dress. I don't care. Do, do something that you as a man have been told not to do societally. Do something that makes you feel uncomfortable. Go to a gay bar. You know what I mean? Do a thing that you might associate with being less of a man and see how it makes you feel. If it makes you feel good, if you, for example, if you go to a gay bar and you do karaoke and you have the time of your life and everybody is like really fun and supportive, ask yourself, what's so bad about that? If you do something like, for example, paint your nails and you hate it, ask yourself why you hate it. What to, is it that you don't like the color? Would you try a different color? Or is it that you don't like the idea of doing a thing that women normally do? And if it's that second one, the next question that you have to ask yourself is, why do you feel so uncomfortable doing things that you might traditionally see women do? And if, you can, if you're brave enough as a man to ask those sorts of questions or to ask the men in your life those questions, I think you will end up with answers that ultimately make you a more complete person. So in short, do some girly shit and see how it makes you feel. Appreciate that, dude. And that's a great call to action. <laughs> so, something that I really encourage my listeners and male clients to do is to explore their pleasure, mm. right? I, this is a, such a tangential conversation, but I often think that pleasure is framed as something that's feminine for a lot of guys and the exploration of their body and their sensuality and their eroticism is seen as quote unquote girly shit. And so I'll be, a, I'm a big advocate actually for just connecting with your body, slowing down, being soft, being gentle having a bubble bath, doing some, some gentle massage, getting the warm oils out and actually just engaging your senses and your eroticism through self-touch and self-pleasure. And so that's my, my avenue for getting guys to reflect on, does it make them feel uncomfortable? Why does it make them feel uncomfortable? So I'm a big, be a big, big advocate for that, man. So thank you for sharing. I very much agree. And I would even go a step further. I would say to, when you're doing that, especially if you're watching like pornography or something like that, um, experiment with 
like gender diverse pornography. Um, like for example, um, watching uh, porn that has trans people in it or watching porn that has, uh, you know, feminine men in it. You know, a lot of people will watch porn with a man having sex with a woman, but they won't watch porn with two women having sex if one of the women has a penis. And it's like, my question is, well, why not? Why not? I mean, uh, uh, if, if, if the man has a penis and the woman has a penis, there's more woman in, in, in the porn involving a trans woman, isn't there? So technically, wouldn't that make you quote unquote more hetero? Because there's only like one, <laughs> you know, there, there's just the phallus and then there's two women. And, and I, but the point that I'm trying to make here is that like having a conversation with yourself about that is really, really hard. Because then you might have to admit to yourself like, oh no, I find that woman with a penis attractive. That's a really hard conversation to have with yourself, especially if you're all alone and don't have anyone to talk to about it. Um, but experiment, yeah. I, I, I love the idea of experimenting with that, especially if you're alone, you ain't gotta tell anyone. Who cares? Do it once, if you don't like it, you don't have to do it again. Yeah, amazing, man. And we spoke about media literacy before. Porn literacy is a big thing that I'm I'm oh, advocating for as well. Oh, so yeah. again, another another tangential conversation. And I'll, I'll, I am mindful that we've gone a bit over. So just want to say a big thank you, mate, for for educating, for the work that you're doing, and for yeah showing up today and just having a chat with me. I, I realized that there was a bunch of questions I didn't get to, and I just was enjoying nerding out with you on a few things and seeking validation from someone with a similar worldview, uh, which is fantastic. But yeah, I'm just really grateful for you, man. Thank you. That pleasure's all mine. And if you ever want to chat again, I'm happy to drag my producer in here <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 and have him, have him set this up again. Cause yeah, great conversation. Much appreciated. Uh, it's really lovely, man. Thanks.